Hi, welcome back to episode two of Voices. Uh, our guest, uh, our guest today will be uh, kind of taken in from part one, uh, the continuation. Uh, this is Patrick Wood. Say hello, Patrick, please. Um, hello. Greetings. Hey, and our guest host is David Callahan, who which we we almost got halfway through the last show before I even got you introduced. We just took off running, and we'll do better this time. Say hello, David. Hey, Terry, not a problem. I'm just here to support and ask questions and learn more from Patrick. It was a tremendous show last time learning all about uh, Anthony Sutton and his relationship and the things that he learned from the man. The one thing I came away with was uh, follow the money, follow the power. Or uh, is, Did I say that right? Yeah, follow the money, follow the power. Mm-hmm. Glad you uh, said that. I, I was going to say that too. Occupy yeah. Technocracy is episode two. And Patrick, you uh, you've got a book out, Technocracy Rising, and you started uh, originally that was going to be volume three of the book you co-wrote with Doctor, uh, not Doctor Anthony Sutton. Uh, can you kind of give us that little black background and let us know what do we need to know about technocracy in twenty minutes? <laughs> I was tempted um, to call it uh, volume three, but it just didn't fit because. Uh, the whole movement of technocracy has morphed into a major global movement uh, through the auspices of sustainable development, Agenda 21, the United Nations, and so on. And even though the Trilateral Commission's fingerprints were all over it, we uh, focused more on the, United, on the U.S. impact of trilateralism back in the 1970s and well okay we we were both Americans you know we're concerned for our own country (laughs) and I still am but it would do the world a disservice at this point to just talk about ourselves because this is not about us per se it's about a takeover of the whole world an economic takeover and it is properly called technocracy because that's where it started back in the 1930s, that's what they called it, technocracy. And just because some slick marketing guru within the bowels of the Trilateral Commission decided to call it sustainable development, I don't, you know, I don't give her about that. I, come on, folks, let's call it what it is. It's technocracy from the 1930s. And it was the only replacement economic system that was ever designed to replace capitalism and free enterprise. There's never been another economic system in history designed to completely replace capitalism and free enterprise other than technocracy. And that's exactly what the United Nations is doing today with Agenda 21 and sustainable development and climate change ad infinitum. So the state is high. Oh, go ahead. I, I just started to say we're going to have a link up. You you tend to hear somebody say a worldwide, um, this has gone worldwide, and you tend to kind of like let that go in one ear and out the other. Uh, we had a former guest uh, a couple of shows back was from New Zealand, and she mentioned John Key was an investment banker, uh, was involved with Wall Street. Uh Obviously, we're not the only ones that are kind of looking into 
there's some backgrounds here with investment banking. The money power is, is what uh, Sutton called. Mm-hmm. Um, John Key was uh, with the Foreign Exchange Committee, Federal Reserve of New York. Um, and now he's Prime Minister of New Zealand. We've got Trans-Pacific down there. There's grassroots resistance uh, really trying to stop the Trans-Pacific movement and running into criminalized dissent, same as happens, remarkably like happens here in the States. Can you kind of touch on that real quickly? Well, there's, gosh, there's so many people that are hovering around the periphery of the Trilateral Commission. It's just staggering. But, you know, when, when money flows... Here we go again. Follow the money, right? <laughs> when, when money flows, it tends to attract birds of a feather. Isn't that strange? And you know, people like Key are just—they're—they're they're obviously very influential and, and very important people in their own right. But he, the fact that that he may not be a direct member of the Trilateral Commission does not mean that he's not—you know—what do you call it? Eating the eating the crumbs that fall off the table. <laughs> he certainly is. And you find people like that in investment banking world uh, all over the world, uh, not just down there, but just virtually every country. Um, New Zealand, by the way, has had uh, a significant contribution, however, to the Trilateral Commission. And, uh, you know, you've got there's been several members of um, the Trilateral Commission from New Zealand, uh, Mike Moore is one of them. He was the ambassador to the U.S. for some time, and he was the former director general of the World Trade Organization. Now, there's a big shot for you. Mm. And he was the former prime minister of New Zealand. Okay, there's <laughs> that's, uh, and he's a member of the Trilateral Commission, right? In in sync with all the stuff we're talking about, technocracy and and uh, sustainable development and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you have a, a guy like uh, Murray Horn from uh, New Zealand. He was the, uh, at one time, he was the uh, uh, the Parliament Secretary of the New Zealand Treasury. And he's currently a manage- managing director of institutional banking in New Zealand. Um, he's also the chairman of ANC Investment Bank, which is a huge investment bank. So there's, you know, you, you, you just kind of look at stuff like this and you say, well, okay, you, you see who the power players are. Uh, you, you see what, they're, what they bring to the table, you know, what, okay. And, and, I, and I realize when, when somebody gets tapped to join the Trilateral Commission, it's not just because you're ideologically in step with them. It's because you have something to bring to the table, either influence or money or both. And so that's kind of what we see in the core of the Trilateral Commission. And there's a there's a European group, a North American group, and an Asian group. And there are some other countries that are represented outside of that. Uh, well, North, the North American group, of course, would include Canada and Mexico. Mm. But, um, you know, Asia goes beyond just Japan, which it was originally. There's now some Chinese members, actually. So... But New Zealand is a, is an important uh, cog in the wheel, for sure. Right. We, I just wanted to kind of – it was remarkable to me, literally, mm-hmm. since I remarked on it, 
uh, because it tied in with what we just had a guest who said that, and that was news to me that a, that a Wall Street banker was the prime minister of New Zealand, literally on the other side of the world. Right. So I guess the question is, uh, just how far along is this? Um, and really, uh, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left in this segment, but people really need to get a real quick understanding of really what is technocracy? What are they talking about? You, you said they want to replace the capitalism system. Well, how do you replace that? I, I well, can't even yeah. get my head around that. That's not easy. Um, let, me, uh, let me give you a definition of green economy. Okay. Uh, this is from the UNEP website itself. That's the United Nations Environmental Program, spelled with an M-M-E. I love that, that program. <laughs> P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E. I know, very European. <laughs> This is how the United Nations defines their green economy. This, this will give you a head start on understanding it. It says, and I quote, a green economy implies the decoupling of resource use and environmental impacts from economic growth. These investments, both public and private, provide the mechanism for the reconfiguration of businesses, infrastructure, and institutions, and for the adoption of sustainable consumption and production processes. Close quote. Now, that's, the, that's their official definition gotcha. of the green economy. And if we break it down a little bit, you see some immediate holes. Okay, how do you decouple resource use from economic growth? That, that's an oxymoron. You can't. You just can't. There's, uh, it, uh, this is beyond the Hegelian dialectic. I, and I a, a quick, can you, can you explain what that means? Because people hear that a lot. We've got ten minutes, so well, it takes, be short. It's, it's proposing an idea, right. and then across, uh, across the way from it, uh, uh, proposing an opposite idea, and then shoving them together, and coming out with yet a third idea, some kind of a compromise idea. Thesis, antithesis, and then the process, the outcome is synthesis of those two ideas. So you take two opposites, you shove them together, you make them, you, you force them to mix with each other, and you come out with some third idea that is neither idea one or idea two. It's a brand new idea. So these people are suggesting that you can have economic growth by decoupling resource use from it. Now, every business that ever made anything has to have inputs. They have to have resources. If you make uh, furniture, you have to have lumber. You have to have boards. Uh, you have to have saws. You have to have sandpaper. you got inputs. Um, but the United Nations is proposing to simply take over the means of consumption and production altogether and using their so-called scientific method, simply deciding all by themselves what should be produced and how much of it can be consumed by you. That means you have no say in it whatsoever. You, you just will accept what they dictate. And if they say that your carbon footprint needs to be reduced 40%, that means you, you need to stop driving your car. Forget that. You need to start riding a bicycle. 
or you quit traveling on the airlines because it you know eats up too much jet fuel, or you're watering your lawn and you got a half acre lawn. They say, look, man, you need to get rid of half your lawn. You you can't have any more than a quarter inch <laughs> lawn. Uh, they will make all the decisions for you according to their scientific method, and you'll have no no ability to make decisions whatsoever. So. Number one implication, you're throwing supply, the whole law of supply and demand out the door. It's just gone. You for, forget supply-side economics, forget Austrian economics, forget Keynesian economics, forget all that stuff, because all those ecosystems of economics talked about supply and demand, right? Yeah. And, and you know, how businesses respond to demand to make new products and stuff, that's out. They want to do away with that altogether. This is the most insane thing you've ever seen. Now, going further than that, in this quote I just said, it says that talks about investments, public and private, that it says it provides a mechanism for the reconfiguration of businesses. I don't have a problem with that statement, by the way. If you own a business, you do whatever the heck you want to do with it. It's not my business. I don't care. If you do wrong, you're going out of business. But then it says, beyond businesses, they're talking about the reconfiguration of infrastructure and institutions. Now, that's us. That's governments. That's the infrastructure that makes our economy work, the roads, the highways, the, uh, the, the culture, um, the, the banking system. All those things are envisioned here. They, they intend to reconfigure infrastructure and institutions. And I say time out. You ain't going to, I don't want you to reconfigure our infrastructure and our institutions. Thank you very much. We like them the way they are. And then it says, all of this is for the purpose of adoption of sustainable consumption and production processes. That's the bottom line for these people. Now, to say this is stark raving insanity is understatement. I just can't, I don't have words to express how ludicrous this is. And yet this is exactly what they're, what they're intending to do, and they make no bones about it. Uh, the head of climate change earlier this year, I think I read this in the first program, but this is what she said earlier this year. She's the number one person on climate change at the United Nations. She said, quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves a task of intentionally within a defined period of time to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, close quote. Now, you can't get any more plain in what their intent here is. She said in a, another little snippet out of that same conference, she said, this is probably the most difficult task we have ever given ourselves, which I'll say amen to that, <laughs> which, is, which is, she says, to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Close quote. But, but it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, you're protecting the planet. It's green. There's probably a koala bear or something that, that you could throw up as a picture for it. I, have we heard this somewhere before? It sounds a lot like a planned economy from the late, great Soviet Union. And the work that you did with Sutton would show there was, they were financed by Wall Street, too. Uh, can you, in the last four minutes, kind of touch on why this sounds familiar, somewhat well, familiar? Well, the only, the only thing truly that it sounds familiar to is, is historic technocracy. That, let's say the most uh, 
the most true, I guess. There are some in a totalitarian model, which this is a totalitarian system. Right. There, there are obviously going to be immediate uh, identifications with various parts of fascism, socialism, communism, Marxism, isms coming out your ears, whatever. There's all of the totalitarian movements in the past have have some little piece of technocracy. Also financed by Wall Street. Which is financed, which now is financed by Wall Street. But the original technocracy model was radically different in one way, in one way in particular. They proposed a system of energy credits that would be used as currency in what they called a technate. That was the actual society that was run by technocracy. And they had it very highly defined on what it would be and what it had to do and how it had to operate and so on. And uh, they would manage the means of production and consumption, and then um, they would allow people to have an energy allocation every month. You'd get a a share of the pie, so to speak, kind of like food stamps, you know, where uh, you get a monthly allocation to use uh, based on how much energy they forecast is going to be in the system that period, like that month or that quarter. And you can go out and spend your energy credits any way you want in stores buying goods that, are priced according to the energy it took to make them. Now, this this is otherworldly to capitalism and free enterprise. This is altogether a different animal, I should say, a horse of a different color. <laughs> it just is. And it, this is why it's so hard to get your head around it. But it's completely totalitarian in nature, number one, because they're going to make a total, all the decisions for us. And, of course, they promise utopia, we're going to be happy and we're going to have lots of leisure time. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> ask any unemployed person. <laughs> How do you like your leisure time, sir? You know, they're going to they're gonna throw a rock at you real quick. Yeah, I'm probably going to say well done because food really comes way up on your list of things you think about. But go yeah. ahead. So, anyway, technocracy uh, was violently opposed to communism back in the 30s. If you, went out, if you walked up and called a technocrat a communist, you're liable to get in a fist fight. And there were a few fist fights, I might add, back in those days over that very issue. They hated communists. They hated communism. They, they, and people routinely said, oh, you're just another communist group, aren't you? And, oh, man, they would get riled up, and they would fight you to the death almost. Um, so even back then, there was this antithesis between them. They did not see themselves as communist at all. And we need to listen to that today. I mean, we need to take note of that today, because when you call them communist today, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the model. And I know they would say, no, we're not communist, but they really are not communist. They are so much worse than communist, I can't describe it. <laughs> Patrick, there seems there seems to be an unspoken thread through everything you've shared in the last 20 minutes as, in just listening to what you're saying. The unspoken thread is, um, though this is an economic model, and you've made it clear that it's that, there is certainly a political uh, force of law um, with, you know, like you're saying, totalitarian uh, consequences. That is the only way that something like this could ever be uh, put into play? Well, you know, there was, <clears throat> I know, the, the idea of, uh, of technocracy is to get rid of politicians altogether. They're of no use to them whatsoever. 
There was a little book written by a guy named Henry Porter back in, I think it was 19, let me see the thing here, it was 19, yeah, I can get to the title page here, I think. Um, I can't believe it's not a date in this book. Here it is, 1932. I have an old copy of it. It's falling apart, uh, but it's, it's a little hardback book. And this guy, Henry Porter, the title of the book is Roosevelt and Technocracy. Uh, it's only about, uh, oh, 75 pages or so. And in the, in the conclusion of this book, Potter makes a plea for Roosevelt to declare himself dictator after he's elected so that he can implement technocracy. They would have disbanded Congress on the spot, thrown them out, all of them. They would have thrown out the uh, all of the elected uh, uh, the elected politician model altogether, and they simply would have declared a dictatorship right there on the spot. And those scientists and engineers that were involved with technocracy back then were prepared to step in and implement the entire program of technocracy as they had defined it with all of their functional sequences and all of their service sequences. They were ready to fly. They were ready to go into action. Thank, thank who, heaven who, Roosevelt turned them away. Who would have been the uh, enforcers? Who would have been the, you know, how would it have been, you know, uh, enforced? How would it have been executed the in the country? The technocrats would have done it. The engineers would have stepped in and basically just run the, would take over the whole country and run it as if it was just one big social engine. And they would have used the military to enforce it, or you know, in other words, how would they have made sure the people conformed? Well, you know, they never they never totally uh, specified those kinds of things. I'll tell you something that's even worse than that. In their technate, in the North American technate, they they drew a map that included Canada, Mexico, Central America, and the top part of South America. That was going to be the North American technate. They never said how they were going to get Canada and Mexico to go along. <laughs> they, they never well, guys, you, it, to them, it's just like, well, of course, it makes sense. Why wouldn't they go along? You know, science, science says this is what needs to be done, so what's your problem? See, that's just what these bozos are saying to us today. Well, hey, science is settled, right? So what's, what's your problem? This is what we have to do. And, we've, got, you know, uh, we've got about 17 minutes left in this section. And you've really kind of brought us into the next section, which is applied technocracy. Uh, again, we'll have a link to your book. That, that, that There's a lot that we're leaving out here, but it's well documented like any all of the work I've seen you connected with. Um, right now, back to current events, uh, Japan orders public universities to end education in social sciences, humanities, and law. Uh, it, was, it just came out a couple of days ago as a Bloomberg report. Um, how does that fit with technocracy? It would seem like technocrats would want trained people unless there's a uh, – what's going on here? Japan is a trilateral country, right? You know, Japan is a trilateral com country, <clears throat> and for the last uh, 25 years, Japan has been degrading uh, as a nation in every possible conceivable way, not only economically, financially. Uh, the people of the country individually um, are so steeped in technology today 
uh, talk about worshiping technology. These people go so far beyond America. That, I mean, you see kids walking down the street. You know, they're texting and walking in the lamp poles and whatever. Um, <laughs> you think we got and playing computer games at home. You think we got it bad here? Any nothing compared to Japan. Japan is just simply over the top with technology, and they're leading the world. Not surprisingly, right now with the development of robots. They they they're making robot service robots now for all kinds of. Uh, situations to to serve in society to serve individual people to serve old people to serve in nursing homes to serve in restaurants cooking food and you name it they're building robots like there's no tomorrow and robots are a totally accepted thing they're building sex robots now in japan because people uh, and, and this has resulted is unfortunately young people don't want to have sex they barely well, that is, a, that is a change in, in world behavior. <laughs> it is. It really is. And it's sad because the young people in Japan are not forming families and they're not having children. I mean, this is just death. I just put up an article on technocracy.news this morning about Paul Ehrlich, the, the author of The Population Bomb from 1968. This book sold millions of copies. And he claimed that the population of the world was going to be uh, running rampant by 1980 or whatever. We'd all be standing elbow to elbow and, you know, eating each other's fingers off or whatever. <laughs> we're all starving to death. And this man headlined a story. I saw this in the Guardian newspaper today that um, Paul Ehrlich is calling the Pope's climate change push raving nonsense without population control. And so this article goes in, you know, it goes in to talk a little bit about him and so on and so on. This guy wrote this book. Everybody believed it back then. And he sold millions of copies and people built their entire lives around Ehrlich's book about population uh, control or the need for it because we're all going to die of overpopulation. Not one single thing he predicted in 1968 has come true. Not one. He, has made, he made no forecast that came true. Uh, in Nostradamus' uh, defense, <laughs> but, but Ehrlich was on the other end of the stick, and you know, I can tell you why he was. This just shows you the lunacy of this. Ehrlich was a scientist. Nobody questions that. PhD-type guy, university-educated, has a doctor before his name, Dr. Paul Ehrlich. His scientific discipline is an entomology. <laughs> You're going to have to entomology definition, I know, the study of insects. <laughs> and, you know, you want when, when you when you see that and when you see this book and you think, oh, my gosh, he used, he used his his knowledge of insects and applied that to humans, which he did. And it makes you want to hit your forehead at that point. Uh, I could have had a V8. You know, it's like this just so, insanity. So if we take out our classes, if we follow Japan's, I would have to assume this is a technocracy thing, I can't understand why you would want to take liberal arts out of your universities uh, if you were, unless you were trying to get rid of individualism. Um, well, yes, indeed, they are. They have, and they are. 
there's a great movie, by the way. You and if you haven't listened to it, you and your listeners should should definitely go listen to this movie. The full movie's on YouTube. I think it was cut in 1985, and it was called Harrison Bergeron. Harrison Bergeron. Okay, let's see if we can get a link to that. <laughs> and yeah, B E R G E R O N. And the theme of the movie is a science fiction movie. The theme of the movie was to pound down the nail that stands up, which is what we're talking about here in Japan. Pound down the nail that stands up. Make them all the same. And this is exactly what education and a technocracy is all about. In fact, in the early, <clears throat> in the early days of technocracy, as they were defining the system, um, they uh, they called uh, education a service sequence as opposed to a functions you know functional sequence a service sequence because it was a service and they considered education to be a continental system of human conditioning that was the exact phrase they used a continental system of human conditioning. Well, being a professional educator, that's exactly what it has become uh, in our public schools in this country. Without question, I have been a public school teacher for eight years in the schools in Florida and Georgia, and it is not about educating our students. As an eighth-grade math teacher, I had to teach my eighth-grade math students the multiplication tables because Mm -hmm. they didn't know them. And (laughs) how can you get through fourth grade without – why would you even pass – fourth grade without knowing that i mean it's we've just gotten to the place that it's nothing but a behavioralist system for controlling children until they reach a certain age that you can put them somehow into uh society that's right real quick behavioralist system would be i'm i'm i need to brush up on my basic psychology but pavlov's dog basically well, yes, there was there was lots of that kind of thinking going around in the in the 1930s, absolutely. And this is this was part of their this was part of the mix of their thinking is that people can be conditioned like animals. And they did believe that people were just nothing more than animals. They believed that people could be conditioned like you can condition an animal. You can train a dog, you can train a person. They're a little bit smarter, but you can train them nonetheless. And you know the the, the utopian uh, view of technocracy again was was spectacular, and I I probably should read this this whole little phrase from page two forty of the technocracy study course. Um, <clears throat> it talks about the the end products attained by a high energy social mechanism on the North American continent. The end products attained by a high energy social mechanism. A uh, point A, a high physical standard of living. Point B, a high standard of public health. Point C, a minimum of unnecessary labor. Uh, D, a minimum of wastage of non-replaceable resources. And E, listen to this, E, an educational system to train the entire younger generation indiscriminately as regards all considerations other than inherent ability dash a continental system of human conditioning close quote that was the end now back to back up to the says that was these are the end products attained by a high energy social mechanism 
So not only, I mean, it's interesting they tag education onto a high physical standard of living, a high standard of public health, whatever, but they just, you know, this is so demeaning. An educational system to train the entire younger generation indiscriminately as regard that's one size fits all, as regards all considerations other than inherent ability. So you see they're actually throwing inherent ability out the door. No consideration of inherent ability. It's to condition the students to respond to certain stimulus. <clears throat> merely to that, be workers. It makes me think that is the exact opposite of what we used to call rugged American individualism. You're right there. It totally uh, contradictory to the entire way in which we were taught as young people uh, that things were virtuous yes. uh, in our society. It's like flipping the whole thing on its head. It is. It's, it's just incredible. And the, the, the paternalistic attitude of these technocrats is just so amazing. And again, I have to say, don't look, to, don't look at politicians like Obama or whoever and say, oh, there's a technocrat. No, those aren't the technocrats. Those people are being used by the technocrats. And I, I don't know if you saw the story just a few days ago, but there was a group of scientists, I think it was 20 scientists, <clears throat> that sent a letter to President Obama demanding that, that, at, that uh, uh, critics of climate change should be punished or convicted under the RICO law, which is the racketeering law, uh, so they could suppress criticism against climate warming. A group I of scientists did this. Yep, saw it, the letter. You, you know, at first somebody would look at that and think, oh, that's just a bunch of wingnut scientists, you know, they're disgruntled or whatever. To which I say, no, they're not. If you understand the mind of a technocrat, true, a true technocrat, who is a scientist or an engineer of their ilk, you will understand exactly why they think they can make a demand to our top politician to convict people that don't agree with them. You would understand perfectly why this could be done. And if we'll I, I looked at the list of the, of the uh, universities that these professors were coming from, and they're high-level high universities in the country. Yes, they are. They're top-rated people, top-rated science and engineers. We've got about uh, six minutes left in this segment. Um, but they, the model, you mentioned Ehrlich, and he's like the uh, poster child for a thing called Malthusianism. Yes. And, again, real quickly, basically our, our listeners are familiar with the, the Malthusian formula basically boils down to there's always more people and there's only one planet. You hear one planet, one world, one world, one world, new world order. Um, it's wrong. Since 1969, uh, the Earth-Moon system is a binary planet system. Yes. So from 69 on, if it was ever right, Malthus goes way back, but if it was ever right, it for sure was out the window when we stepped on our first, second world, worlds, plural. Um, can you kind of touch on how technocracy seems to be really getting into this fake notion of shortages? Is that part of their how they get these things to work? You cannot control anything that is in abundance. That's impossible. If you live, for instance, if you live next door to Lake Erie, say you live on the lake, right? and somebody comes along and says, 
water is scarce and we're going to control water on your property. You would, you and your neighbors would laugh them <laughs> off your property and all the way back to Missouri or wherever. <laughs> I don't know. You would just say, are you crazy? Get out of here, you nutcake. Um, water has to be made scarce before it can be controlled. Energy must be made scarce before it can be controlled. The air must be made scarce before it can be controlled. And this is exactly what they have done for the last 40 years. And this is not a new tactic, by the way. They tried to do the same thing back in the early 70s. The Trilateral Commission came out of the gate. In 1973, the Carter, Jimmy Carter got elected with Mondale, both members of the commission, in 76. And what we saw in those early days, we saw an energy crisis, number one, a huge energy crisis where the price of gas went up. To, I forget what it was, but it just everybody was just screaming and sweating all over our country. You had interest rates took off like a rocket with, you know, all kinds of economic turmoil and stuff. You had... You had gold being uh, deregulated back then and fiat currency just being cut loose and stuff. All these things, uh, these shortage-oriented things, were done by these same people that, they're, that are doing it to us today. They didn't get... Remember back then it was global cooling that was going to kill us all. They were using that as the mantra to stampede people into this new way of thinking. And unfortunately, it didn't work back then. But now they've changed their whole tune. Now it's not global cooling. That didn't fly. Uh, the data never supported it, but it didn't fly, so now they're using global warming. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> and uh, peak oil was part of that. Uh, it was. The peak oil theory. Uh, wasn't he one of the, is he in one of your books? That's, that's the guy right. That came up that, with peak oil? That was M. King Hubbard, I believe, in 1955, who invented right. the oil theory. M. King Hubbard was a co founder of Technocracy Inc. in 1934. He was a young geophysicist at the time, and he was literally the co-founder, and he was the guy that wrote the technocracy study course that I just quoted from. Hmm. He was the principal author of that book, and he pulled out of technocracy, uh, Inc., when he got a job with a big oil company, and they didn't, I probably they didn't like that much, but uh, he went on to do other things, including inventing the peak oil theory, and he is now hailed as one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the eco-movement. And about one minute left in this section to remind people, um, he may have been a geophysicist, but unfortunately his astronomy was a little bit wrong. <sighs> now it's worlds, plural. If we go out to a moon of Saturn called Titan, there's one lake, just one lake on Titan that has more than the proven oil energy resource uh, 40 times the energy resources of all normal energy resources, hydrocarbons on Earth. Um, not so much a shortage. By the way, then there's an ocean full of it around that lake, and that's a couple of hundred times the known reserves. In fact, there's so much of it that according to the article, we wouldn't have enough oxygen to even burn this much hydrocarbons. That's right. Uh, so, okay. If I could just interject, interject real quick, one, uh, one final thought in this segment, and that is, you know, Patrick, you mentioned about water shortage, and unless people think this isn't local concern, I was talking to a neighbor just the other day about the fact that the county commission in this county is right now 
talking about policy changes to make it illegal for you to own your water on your property. Mm. Um, and the people in the community are just livid about this. This is real-life uh, decisions that are being made at the local level. That's right. That I know is connected to technocracy. It absolutely is. That's because the whole mantra of sustainable development, Agenda 21, is technocracy. It's not like technocracy. No, it is technocracy, and it's being run in the same way by these so-called science engineers. They think they're so. I mean, they think they're science engineers, and I'm sure they got the degrees, but they are not God. Excuse me very much. They are not gods that they can dictate to other people, but they think they are. They think they are, they think they can, and they think they do. We've got uh, about uh, 20 minutes left in the program, and we want to get to another of the sections. Uh, the book that you co-wrote with Seth Sutton, uh, Chapter 6, Volume 2, <laughs> Trilaterals <laughs> Over Washington, which now reads like ancient history, but ancient history that proved out to be very accurate. Um, quote, taxation is not a pressing problem for trilateralists. And, and you were basically, you guys were making the point in that book that uh, that the rich don't pay their taxes. And we can see that clear as a bell. The ultra-rich don't pay their taxes. These rules are for everybody else, not for the giant corporations owned by the money power. They're paying a fraction of what Joe Blow is paying out of his paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's a pretty good way to control a population, a good way to get rid of the middle class. Is that on purpose for technocracy? Of course uh, it is. And <clears throat> the, only, the only thing you can say against that is that technocracy doesn't have any view for money or capitalism or, you know, the things produced by capitalism like the need for taxes that's based on capitalism because you're, um, you know, if you're investing in something or if you have a business and you produce profits, stuff like that, you earn wages you, at, a, at a capitalist free enterprise company, <clears throat> all those things are tied to the system of capitalism and free enterprise. But uh, nevertheless, within that, the, the, the trilaterals from day one clearly believed that they were above the law as far as, it was, as, far as taxation was concerned. And we demonstrated that by a very elaborate pattern patterning process where we studied a lot of different companies and how, how they paid taxes and stuff. And the trilateral companies, in other words, those with directors, uh, the board of directors who were members of the Trilateral Commission, trilateral connected companies paid significantly less taxes than non-trilaterally connected companies, of which there were many, by the way, in the country. There are big ones, too. But if you weren't connected to the Trilateral Commission, uh, you pretty much got hosed. And if you were part of the club, so to speak, uh, apparently you had ways to avoid taxes that nobody else was allowed to get in on. And it was that quite sounds like That sounds like follow the money, follow the power. Yes, it does. Uh, very yes, it clearly does. Uh, no. articulated. No. That's how we wow. arrived at that. That's how we arrived at the study in the first place, just following the money. Something didn't seem right. We started looking at it a little harder and say, son of a gun, I don't know how they're doing it, but here's the here's the proof. Here's the evidence. So the, the immediate knee-jerk reaction to that would be, well, we need to tax the rich. And the problem with that would be you have to make a differentiation between tax rates and tax revenues. And basically about the time you guys were writing that, 
the guys that were economics, I think supply siders, pretty much got hosed. Uh, a, a trilateralist named George Bush was uh, running on a program of calling tax cuts voodoo economics. Mm-hmm. Um, again, trilateralists don't seem to be looking for tax cuts. So how do we engineer growth? That's the million-dollar question here with 16 minutes left. Well, uh, yes, yes, you're right. <clears throat> the whole idea of, uh, well, not the whole idea, but one of the major planks of Marxism originally was a progressive tax on the people. In other words, the more you make, the more you pay, percentage-wise. And a variable tax like that was designed to prevent people from rising up above anybody else. Is pounding the nail, it stands up. And keep people generally suppressed in a, in a common lower class or whatever, middle class, whatever class you want. But you didn't want anybody to accelerate too quickly. So a progressive income tax that was implemented back in the early 1900s was exactly that. It was straight out of the Communist Manifesto, if you will. And it is still with us today, penalizing anybody who is too successful. It smacks them where they can't be even more successful. And uh, the thing that's just outrageous about this is that you and I, on the on the lower level, we have to deal with that reality. It's very hard for us to do anything significant and not get taxed to death on it. But if you're in the super elite group like the trilaterals are, those companies have ways to move money around the world where they virtually pay no income tax anywhere. And so they're running amok while we're being oppressed, if you will, or pressed down. And uh, it's, it's just wrong. I, I hate to use the word justice in this because, you know, that's, that's a dangerous word to use. But this is not right. This is absolutely wrong, and it's wrong-headed. If we ever wanted to have economic growth again in our country, if it was possible at all, the quickest way to get there would be just simply to remove the income tax altogether on people, that businesses and stuff, small businesses, just do away with income tax altogether. Use a system of property taxes, perhaps, uh, to, to raise a minimum amount of money to necessary to run government. But otherwise, can the IRS just fire everybody, all to, every single one of them, and come up with some other scheme to fund the government. That would require, like, probably like what Ron Paul said some years ago, the, the wholesale uh, eviction of entire agencies in the federal government. You know, that would be about the only way, if there was any possibility of free enterprise rebuilding America. That would do it, probably, but there's nobody, nobody in sight that would even conceivably take those actions. Well, the crux there, of the matter is, isn't it, that this is an attack against the middle class, uh, the average American that's really at the at base of this whole uh, economic uh, direction? Yes, absolutely. The middle, class, <clears throat> the middle class is not needed by the technocrats. They would have everybody be just able to survive. And the original concept of giving energy credits to everybody they, the idea was they was to, they would supply living quarters for you. They would tell you where you would work, and you'd go to work every every day. Maybe you'd work 20 or 30 hours a week, whatever, and you for that you'd get your energy credits. 
and all the rest of your time would be leisure time. You were not allowed to accumulate money from period to period because the energy credits expired. You were not allowed to have any inheritance because you could not accumulate wealth in order to give it to anybody when you died. And so basically, it's just people living like a bunch of little robots in their little social ant farm. That's well, it. Why don't, we just go, why don't we just go back to the Middle Ages and uh, surf them? Well, you know, you just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly where this is headed. It's, it's an elite form of it, but basically it's where a few will own all the meaningful resources in the world, and the rest of us will have to basically squat on a little corner of the planet and hope that we can lease that, either lease that, uh, that little corner or perhaps we can work out something to give a percentage of our profits back to the elite who control the resources. And that is essentially what feudalism was. The land barons owned everything, and you lived there at the discretion of the landowner. If he didn't like your face, he could just throw you out or worse, kill you. You had no say to me about. like the people that are going to run the show are people that are in positions of power, either heads of state, corporate executives, or public officials, uh, are going to be in the fat, dumb, and happy position, and the rest of us are going to just have to kind of figure out how to get along. Yeah. It reminds me of Dr. William K. Black, the white-collar criminologist during the uh, savings and loan scandal, came up with the term of control fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, corporate executives, heads of state, and public officials take legitimate entities and turn them into a weapon against society through color of law, pretense of authority, and illicit financial manipulation. Mm-hmm. That's right. Sounds like <laughs> that's exactly what technocracy is about. Here's here's another here's another word picture. Take take the movie Les Miserables. You, you may have seen it. Most people have read the book as a classic. But take the movie Les, Les Miserables and give everybody an iPhone. <laughs> that's uh. it. <laughs> I, I think the word there is dystopia, not utopia. <laughs> You're right. That's exactly right. We've got well, nine minutes left. How do we stop this, guys? What are we going to do? Local action is it. We we have lost the national scene altogether. Uh, they have made sure that we lost the national uh, picture. But we have a massive amount of work we can do on a local basis to drive this kind of garbage out of our cities. and. Uh, you know, it's in every it's in every little town, burg, all over America. It's in every county. Uh, there's a system of regional governments that's uh, totally unconstitutional. But it's been impressed on virtually every community, uh, every state and county in the, in the nation. Uh, there are these general plans that are being brought in directly from consulting organizations connected to um, the United Nations and stuff. These things can and must be driven out of our local communities. People, for some reason, you know, they listen to what we're talking about, and they get all worked up. Oh, there ought to be a law, you know, or, oh, I'm mad as hell. You know, you've heard that before, right? (laughs) And they shake their fist, and they hop up and down, and they complain to their neighbors. But will they lift a finger to do anything about it? No, they don't. This is very frustrating to me. I'll tell you what. People that see the problem that refuse to lift a finger to stop it are complicit in the problem, and I don't care who you are. I don't care what your political party is. I don't care whether you call yourself um, a conservative, a Christian, a liberal. It doesn't matter. If you see the problem and you do nothing to stop it, you're complicit. It's as bad as, it's as, bad as stumbling upon a crime. 
that's being committed and you witness the crime, like somebody being killed or somebody being raped or somebody being mugged or something, and you ditch off into the nearest street and say, man, I ain't getting involved in this. Well, you're complicit in that case. If you, if you see a crime has been committed and you don't take action to stop it, you're just as guilty as almost the person who did it because they may not be caught because you didn't stand up. And so Americans need to be spanked a little bit, I believe. Say, guys, it's your country. Don't complain to me if you don't like the outcome of this. Just stop complaining. We don't want to hear it. Maybe a lot, uh, Patrick. Maybe it's <laughs> we, we, we might need to be hitting the side of the head with a two-by-four to realize what's coming at us and want to do something about it. I think of the concept of civic duty. Yeah. that we need to start getting a handle on again. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what the mainstream... We can blame the mainstream media for this, much of which, by the way, is controlled by members of the Trilateral Commission. But mm-hmm. they have they've developed a culture of, of putting news into people's head, events and stuff, that are designed to aggravate. <clears throat> they're not only to aggravate you, but they're designed to give you a rush of adrenaline, just so you react, just so you get angry at something that you see on the news, your adrenaline starts pumping, um, your, your, um, uh, you know, the, the, the same response that people have when they smoke marijuana or whatever, those types of things chemically happen to your brain. When Endorphins. You worked up. Endorphins. You get, you know, it's the, the pleasure thing. You don't realize it, but getting angry like that and, and reacting gives you a high that is addictive. It's flat-out addictive. So you come back the next day for another fix. You turn on the 6 o'clock news. Ah, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to go get a beer. You know? Yeah, the, the famous line from Network. Yeah. I'm as mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> That's yeah. right. But we are still taking it. That but Network premiered it. in 77, I think. 76. Late 70s. 76, 76. Yeah. But let me tell you what, what, the, what the problem is here. And this the alternative media is guilty as this as well. Um, when people are addicted to news for the sake of getting a high, they don't recognize it, but when they're addicted to that kind of news to get a high, just like a dope addict, they will be useless for any other good work Uh in their life. The rest of their life will be a train wreck because they're not interested in doing anything about it. They're only interested in getting another fix. So that's why people keep listening to the to the major news networks, and it's also why a lot of people, I hate to say it, listen to somebody like Alex Jones, who gets people just riled, totally riled up, uh, and, may, and who knows, maybe rightly so, but it becomes an addiction to many people so that they, the last thing they'll ever do is go raise a finger to do anything about it to solve the problem, because if they solve the problem, they wouldn't have the ability to be addicted anymore. Hmm. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. It's kind of like telling the marijuana the marijuana addict to go out and burn his marijuana crop down sometime next week. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably right. marijuana is not a good one on that, since the no, research it shows it probably isn't. But I'm just saying, you know, just well, tell a drug addict to go cut off the source of his own drugs. He's not going to do it. That's my point. Yeah, it would be closer to the opium. So you will get a reaction if you cut off somebody's opium for sure. Yes, indeed. Opium wars. The good news is is that what we're talking about here, we're not part of the uh, 
emotion-based news reporting system right. where people trying to take and analyze, as Dr. Edwin Vieira says, you first have to show the good people how they've been affected and where the problem is, yes. and then you show them how to uh, attack that problem, yes. how to yes. try to find answers. And we, right. you know, you, you, I know you're doing some things, Patrick, that are uh, attempting to encourage people to participate and be involved at the local level from the bottom up. We have some things coming down the pike that we can't even talk about yet, but you've got some things that you're uh, doing and working with people. Share a few of those with us. Well, I created a website called localactivist.net. It's a, a private social network, user uh, member supported. It's fully encrypted, meaning that it's just like if you give a credit card on online or stuff. It can't be hacked, uh, at least easily hacked, by somebody just wanting to snoop on the network to see what's going on. Facebook and Twitter, that's all open. You say anything on there, everybody in the world knows it instantly, including your enemies. So I created localactivist.net to support local groups working in communities to try and tackle one one issue or another, whether it be a, a city council issue or a county zoning problem or uh, a general plan or, you know, you name a school board issue. Um, <clears throat> people need to keep their mouth shut, make a strategy, then just go out and do it. Don't, don't talk about it to everybody. Just go out and do it. That's what that was for. I also just created a, another website, uh, uh, called technocracy.news. And the idea uh, here is to curate news from around the web and around the world on technocracy, on what I view as important to technocracy. So to date, there is, there's never been a place to go for news about technocracy. Well, now there is. It's technocracy.news. And I think that will help people to kind of get in touch with the, with the current events and how they relate to technocracy um, so that they can see the big picture and, and kind of get a feel for the enemy's strategy. We've got about two you've minutes also, left. You've also There's... written a book, and we really didn't talk about it a lot uh, specifically. Take a minute. And... Sure. Technocracy Rising, uh, the, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, is available on Amazon.com. There's a Kindle version on Amazon.com. And it's available on my website, the book website, which is called technocracyrising.com, not surprisingly. And there's other information there. There's lots of videos people can watch of interviews I've done. There's other articles and stuff about technocracy. Uh, I would encourage anybody to go there, uh, uh, even if they buy the book from Amazon, to go to technocracyrising.com and listen to some of those other resources and get up to speed. Those were really good interviews, by the way. Yeah, I did that myself, and that's how I first learned about your information and have shared that broadly, and I just got my copy of the Kindle book, and I'm working through it now, and I appreciate it. Great. That's super. Those interviews were really nice, too, because they went into more detail on what the book is. and We just don't have the time on the two shows that we've had you because we've been trying to pick your brain on, on applied technocracy, too. Absolutely, um, and we've talked about a lot of things that uh, I haven't really talked about anywhere else, too. So, you know, every time I do an interview, no matter where it is, it always seems that some other aspect comes up and something else gets, you know, get, kind of gets put out to the public. And so that's what's interesting. So there may be some commonalities between my various interviews, but there's always something new. <laughs> 30 seconds left. What's your final word for us, Patrick? Well, if it oh. is us, who? 
And if it isn't now, when? That's about it. Well, that rings a bell. <laughs> well said. I've heard Very that. Well How said. about David? Last word, 15 <laughs> seconds. Go. Well, I just think we, uh, we've we got some information here that's really helpful, and we just now need to get off our backsides and get busy starting to fix the problem. If we don't fix the problem, then who can? Uh, besides us, it's up to us to do so. Yeah. That would be my, my thought. Thanks for standing, guys. We're out of time. This is Voices, Episode 2. Our guest was Patrick Wood. Guest host was David. Uh, thanks for being with us, Mr. Callahan. Good to see you again, and we look forward to seeing our audience again next week. Stay tuned. Bye-bye.